let's, uh, let's go ahead and buckle up, uh, open up to John 1. Now, uh, for those of you, how many of you guys have ever visited over at uh, our church, Life in Deep Ellum? A couple of you guys? Yeah. Um, we have a, a different kind of model. It's, we call it incarnational church. Incarnation, as we see Jesus becoming man, uh, a human being amongst us. An incarnational church is a church that begins to look like its neighborhood. In some, in, that it, We speak the language of the people around us. So we have a cultural center in the middle of Deep Ellum, which is very artistic, bohemian kind of area. And we tend to attract certain kinds of people. Um, uh, we tend to uh, attract a, a younger group of people who, generally speaking, all have commitment issues, if I'm, if I'm just going to be honest with you. And this, this is not just in their relationships, but in their, their entire spirituality, holistic commitment issues. So it, it gives me different issues as a pastor to face. Um, a lot of people my age and younger, they like Jesus, right? Jesus is cool, but they're just not sure they want to be exclusive with him. You know what I mean? They kind of want to keep their options open. They, they have this, this relationship with him that uh, doesn't really go uh, all the way. We're just kind of making sure we're playing the field a little bit. Uh, I mean, they like the idea that Jesus will answer their prayers or bless them or reveal to them what his plan is for their life. Um, but they're not really sold on this commitment thing. They, they kind of see Jesus as a friend with benefits, if we're going to be honest. And uh, because, uh, because of that, I often have to deal with this idea of being committed to Jesus, of putting roots in in. And being, as Paul says, in Christ. Because uh, without roots, we're not, we're not going to grow. And uh, there's a, um, an artist, he's a musician in Dallas, his name is Wheeler Sparks. And he's wrote, he wrote this big, huge, long, um, almost like this opus day. It's like nine songs that go together. And at the very end of it, and it's like tells this whole long story. It's primarily about his grandfather, starts when he's young. He goes off to war and all these kind of things. But it, it ends with him coming back into Dallas. And um, there's this, the final lines of his song, they're just brilliant. It says, when I crossed back to the banks of my hometown, there what had been lost was again found. Oh, my Lord, look at all this history. Oh, my Lord, look at what it says of me. If anything at all, let this be true. The fear of planted roots is the fear of bloom." Fear of planted roots is the fear of bloom. And life is good, then it's gone so soon. So uh, that's what we're going to be talking about this morning, is um, the, the deep need for us to be rooted in Christ for the very sole purpose that you will never grow without it. If you don't have roots, the very best you can hope for is more of the same. That's the best. Right? So, uh, John 1, uh, we're going to look at a passage here. Uh, verse 35 is where I'm going to start. I'm just going to walk through this passage. This is what I normally do on Sunday mornings. I just kind of walk through a passage, commentate as we go along, and then uh, we'll, we'll get to some uh, how this applies to you. So, verse 35. The next day, again, John was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus, and he walked by and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Now, okay, the John here is John the Baptist, right? Who wears the, the furry clothing, eats the nasty stuff like locusts and honey. That's who we're talking about. Voice crying in the wilderness. And he's been clamoring about this Messiah dude for a long time. 
And finally he's here. And he says, behold, the Lamb of God. And he's got these disciples with him that, let's see what John's talking about, have been hearing him prepare the way for this guy. So it's of no surprise that these disciples take off and follow Jesus, right? John would have wanted them to. It's not like they're deserting John. John would have been quite happy with them, the fact that they're going to go follow this new guy, right? And who are these two disciples? Um, one is identified later as Andrew, right? And the other one is unnamed. And that's, how many of you guys have taken New Testament with me? They're all on this side for some reason. Uh, the New, in New Testament, we talk about this, that the unnamed disciple all through the book of John is more than likely... John, right? Uh, he, he refers to himself as the beloved disciple or the one whom Jesus loves, right? And you're like, all right, seriously, John? You're like thinking, what should I call myself? Oh, Jesus is favorite, right? Brag much, John, right? So that's who uh, the two disciples are that uh, take off and follow Jesus. Now, verse 38, Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, what are you seeking? What do you want? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, come and you will see so they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it is about the tenth hour. Now, Jesus asked them this, uh, this powerful question. All right, what do you want? What are you seeking? What are your motivations? What's going on here? Good questions for us. I mean, many of us grew up in this Christian gig, kind of just following the path that was laid out before us. But uh, I dare you to let Jesus look in the eyes and say, really, what do you want? Why are, why are you walking this path? What are your motivations here? And so they replied, hey, Jesus, we want to see where you're staying. And Jesus opens his arms and says, come and see, right? Come and see. Taste and see that the Lord is good, all right? Uh, you, can, you can test me, right? And so they come and they see him. And, and, you know, rabbis were highly respected in first century Judaism, highly respected. They were the evangelical pastors of the day, right? And it was their job to interpret uh, the Law and the Prophets, right? The Book of Moses, Pentateuch, as those in Old Testament going through with me, and the Prophets, they interpreted these for the people, right? And it was, what they had was like, their set of interpretations was called their yoke. Imagine like oxen, you guys remember that, that wooden thing that goes over them? Those, that's the yoke, and that was kind of their set of teachings. And so what the rabbi would do is they would spread their yoke, right? Their set of teachings. Remember Jesus would say, come to me all you who are weary, for my, my yoke is easy. My burden is light. That's his set of teachings. And what the disciples would do would take the yoke of the rabbi, the teachings, and they'd spread the rabbi's yoke. They would spread his teachings. Okay, let's move on here. Verse 40. One of the two who had heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother Simon and said to him, We found the Messiah. We got him. Which means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, So you are Simon, the son of John? You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. I love this passage. Um, this is where the infamous Peter enters the scene. And Andrew's all excited because he, he thinks he's found the guy, right? Some of you guys may think, Oh, well, that's cool. They found Jesus. Imagine. It's not like these guys have been waiting for a couple of years. The people of God have been waiting for generations. Stories have been passed down and passed down and passed down about the coming Messiah one day. Can you imagine the anticipation, right? Think about just like, imagine 
Christmas only come once in your entire life. Imagine the, the anticipation on Christmas Eve, wanting to stay awake and, and all, as a kid. Can you remember staying awake on Christmas Eve? That happened once a year. Multiply that by infinity. These are what these people are feeling, right? The Messiah is here. And so I, what my favorite thing is, is that Jesus walks up to Peter, and the first thing he does is changes his name. Just like, really? He might like, hi, I'm Scott Wilson. No, you're Frank. Uh, who do you think you're? I'm Jesus. I could have called you like Chester or something, so chill out. <laughs> I mean, very few of us will leave an encounter with Jesus the same. Sometimes your very identity gets rearranged. So think about this. Uh, perhaps you remember the first time you met Jesus. You left some sort of encounter with him changed. Anyone ever experienced something like that? You just you felt an encounter with the risen Lord, and it just it shifted something inside of you. And I can remember when I was a kid in church. I grew up in the church. And at the time, Jesus was kind of like an imaginary person to me, if I'm honest. You know, we sang songs about him. Jesus loves the little children, red and yellow, black and white. I mean, uh, I had the cutout flannel pictures. You guys have flannel boards when you're, when you're kids. You know, Jesus wore these weird fashion robes and the beauty pageant, pageant sash. And, you know, that Jesus was like this imaginary person to me, like the Easter Bunny or Paul Bunyan, right? However, in my teenage years, I started to kind of take my faith a little more seriously. I started owning my faith. And I began to, uh, to stop uh, treating it as something my parents gave me, but something on my own. And I can still remember the night I was... Oh, I was probably about 13, 12 maybe. I can't remember. But uh, my mom was still at the time coming into my, my bedroom saying uh, that what are kind of perfunctory bedtime prayers. And I still remember the night when I explained to her that I didn't want her to do that anymore. And I remember my motivations even. It wasn't that I was too old for bedtime prayers. I was too old for my mommy to be telling me how to say my prayers. This is my faith now. It's not my parents' faith. This was mine. And I can remember growing in that and, and learning how to, to talk to Jesus and pray and, and those sorts of things. And, and the faith became something that was mine. In those wobbly days of trying to understand Jesus, my faith grew. He ceased to be an idea to me. He became a real person. Like I would say things like, I can feel him. I can sense him. It was like there was, there was someone other out there. It wasn't this mystical, abstract idea. It was a person to me. And I found myself loving him, like I had affection for him. And so, uh, as I grew in those, uh, in my early days, I reveled in these Jesus encounters. If you guys grew up Pentecostal, you know that's like what we Pentecostals have PhDs in. We know how to experience the Lord, right? We know how to experience him. And he showered for forgiveness on me for all my stupid sins. Uh, he opened my heart to reverence. He opened my heart to joy. But uh, that was only the beginning. I soon found that the Lord had bigger plans. He wanted to grow me up. You guys know what I mean? He wanted to grow me up. Uh, perhaps you recall the other stories in the Gospels where Jesus is walking along the shore. And he looks out to some guys fishing, right? He says, come follow me. Who's amongst them? Peter. Come follow me. What do they do? They drop their nets. 
and I go follow him. And I stop and I go, wait a second. Haven't they already met? Didn't, didn't Jesus already meet these guys? The account John seems to say so. So what's going on here? I, I think it's quite clear we have two different accounts, two different occurrences. If I could say it this way, there is a distinct difference between encountering Jesus and following him. You guys following? A distinct difference between encountering Jesus and following him. Maybe I could say this way. In America, lots of people have encountered Jesus. Not so many follow him. Lots of people have encountered him. Not so many follow him. This, this is at the heart of the gospel. Because salvation is more than a ticket to heaven, guys. Right? It's not like we're aboard in the Polar Express. Right? God cares not just about your destination, about who you are right now. His goal is to turn you into who you were originally meant to be. Let's imagine you were born in the Garden of Eden and sin hadn't entered the world. He wants to turn you into that person. He's trying to reverse the fall in you right now. And so I, I like to talk about, you know, we all know this. Christianity can't be a hobby in your life. It's a lifestyle. It's, it's like monasticism or vegetarianism or playing World of Warcraft. It's a lifestyle, right? And one of the, one time uh, Jesus walked by this guy. He was sitting at a tax collector's booth. He said, come on, come follow me. And the guy just stands up and starts following. We know him as Levi or Matthew. And he just leaves who he was behind. I like to say it this way. Um, you know, when we encounter Jesus, you come as you are, right? Warts and all. It doesn't matter what junk you got in your heart, you come as you are. But when we follow Jesus, we leave who we are behind. Right? We leave who we are behind. The Christian life, I mean, it's, it's, it's kind of like a Michael Bay movie. That it's exciting, it's costly, and it's kind of hard to follow. Right? The Christian life, it's exciting! And it's going to cost you something. And you're going to struggle with, at parts trying to follow what Jesus asked you to do. Because growth is not connected to comfort. I, I say this to my church all the time. We'll get up, um, uh, we do a, a thing that's uh, where we ask people to raise hands if they have issues or prayer requests and we circle around them and pray for each other, which is something like in seeker-sensitive movements they say not to do because it makes people feel uncomfortable. Well, I often explain to them, as your pastor, I don't really care about your comfort. That's not really my goal. You know, you don't go into a fitness center to train with someone whose goal is your comfort. You will never lose weight. You will never get stronger. You will never become healthier. My goal as your pastor is to stretch you in strategic ways so that you grow. Your heart gets bigger and you begin to trust more. All right? And if you want to grow, comfort is enemy number one. Enemy number one. All right? So, uh, how do we accomplish this? And this is where we're going we're gonna to start getting to the nitty-gritty. How, uh, how do we move forward and create maybe a culture? Uh, let's just speak for OSL. How do we create a culture for growth? It's the million-dollar question. There are lots and lots of books written about this kind of stuff. And to answer it, uh, you really have to look at one biblical word, grace. 
In my opinion, for a culture of growth, we need a culture of grace. Just read through Galatians, and you'll see that Paul constantly uh, pulled down a lot of our ideas that it's about trying really hard, it's about legalism, and these sorts of things. None of that works. It doesn't work. Grace works. Grace works. And one of the greatest modern voices on this kind of grace is a guy by the name of Brennan Manning. I don't know if you've heard of him. A Roman Catholic author, um, recovering alcoholic, and uh, he's written many, many books, books by titles like uh, The Importance of Being Foolish, Ruthless Trust, Abba's Child, The Wisdom of Tenderness, and his autobiography that's now out is called All is Grace. All is Grace. And as a, a recovering alcoholic, he totally understands the need for growth, the need for grace. And I heard him speaking once, he, he said this, um, that as Christians, we need to learn to stop shooting on ourselves. I have to say that really carefully. Because we do that. I should do this. I should do that. I ought to do this. I ought to do that. Stop shooting on yourselves. If you think you can guilt trip yourself into growth, you're kidding yourselves. You're mistaken. And if you grew up in, in a Pentecostal holiness kind of church, the holiness tradition is where Pentecostalism comes out of, kind of tied to the Puritanism that you see, like the Scarlet Letter Days, uh, where it's all these rigid rules, you probably have encountered strong legalism in your life. And you probably have something in your spirituality that makes you think that you can beat yourself up, that you can guilt trip yourself into a better person. Not gonna work. You cannot guilt trip yourself into growth. Stop shooting on yourselves. You need grace. And uh, in the beginning, as we experience grace, it often feels like forgiveness. How many of you guys remember, maybe you were at a youth camp, or maybe uh, it was some time as a kid where you really understood that God forgives you, and that grace just felt like a shower on your soul. Do you guys remember that? Yeah, you just felt forgiven. But as you continue to walk and follow the Lord, that grace will not be so much experienced as forgiveness, but as power. Power to live, power to change. It's it's what we were singing there, break chains, transform us. That's grace that's doing that. It's not our effort. It's not our muscling up and disciplining ourselves. It's God's grace through his spirit working in your soul. That's going to make you grow. Now, I want to be clear what a culture of grace is and what a culture of grace is not, because we can go get kind of weird with this. Uh, what I mean is grace is not a license to sin. It is not a license to sin. Uh, Paul says this on, in Romans, uh, and we, we hear this. Should I go on sinning so that grace may increase? Right? I want more grace, I should go knock over a convenience store? Right? By no means, Paul says, ex exclamation point, by no means. And Paul's talking to this group in Corinth who are all kind of bragging about being this, hey, we're all about grace here. We're so much about grace. We got this dude who's sleeping with his stepmom. They're like proud about it. They're bragging about it. And Paul's like, no. That's not what grace is about. Why would you be bragging about that? And sometimes I go into some faith communities and there's so much about grace that they mistake it to be a license for sin. Now, I have to, I have to, the other side of the coin here. 
God's grace, guys, is so scandalous. It's such a free gift that it will be mistaken a lot of times for a license to sin. There will be people who mistake it as such because it is that scandalous, the grace that God gives us. But we miss the heart of it if we, if we take it as such. It's never meant to let you just go out and indulge our sinful nature or our flesh, but is meant to rescue you from your sinful nature and your flesh. Right? So the way I kind of look about this is um, there's a tension. Imagine a rubber, ha- rubber band between my hands, okay? And there's a tension between them. For a culture of grace, you need two things. You need unconditional acceptance, and you need brutal honesty. On one hand, unconditional acceptance and pulling the tension, brutal honesty. And in Brendan Manning's uh, probably most popular book, Ragamuffin Gospel, he tells two stories that will illustrate these perfectly for me. So uh, the first one on unconditional acceptance, he tells a story about his wife, Rosalind. He got married later in life, and she was in a uh, theology class. And uh, for those of you who took New Testament with me, you'll probably probably recognize some of this, but in the class, a lady by the name of Dr. McKenna was teaching on the different groups that were in the New Testament times. You guys remember these words like Pharisees, Sadducees, Zealots, right, Uh, Essenes, and there's a fifth one that we'll talk about as well. And so she's talking about these, and and the Pharisees were the ones that are faithful to the law. They were the, the, in the day, they get a bad rap in the New Testament because Jesus butts head with them a lot, but more than anyone else, theologically, Jesus agreed with them most. He was hardest on them, not because of their doctrine, but because of their hypocrisy. Remember? Okay? So uh, they were the evangelicals of the day. The Sadducees were the wealthy aristocrats, right? They were the ones living over in Highland Park, the same neighborhood with uh, George Bush, right? And they were, they were kind of like, they, they were in control of the temple, and they had a lot of political uh, swagger, okay? And then you had the zealots, and these were guys were political advocates. Uh, advocates, right? They're the ones doing all the Occupy stuff, right? And they were trying to get, get Rome out of Israel. And then you have the Essenes. And maybe I, these are kind of like the Amish of the day, right? Uh, the ones that were all driving around in, in wagons and, and wearing clothes with no zippers, okay? Do you guys know that Amish don't wear zippers because it's like a modern invention? Mm. Just it's so much more convenient. Okay, um, and so there's a fifth group. The fifth group is by far the most, uh, the biggest group. If I put a pie chart up here, they'd be like 80% of the people. The Pharisees, Sadducees, Zealots, and Essenes don't even occupy more than 20% of the people. The rest of the people were just called sinners. You see this often. There's a very defined group. They weren't religious leaders. They were all just the workers and blue-collar people. just the sinners. And so in this class, uh, at the end of her lecture, the professor did a little experiment with them. And uh, she asked everyone to stand up, and she asked, those who do not smoke, go stand over on this side of the room, stand by the wall. And she asked the reformed smokers, you used to smoke, but don't smoke anymore, stand in the middle of the room. And if you're still smoking, go stand on this side of the room. Well, all the people who didn't smoke went to the left, and there were about 30 of them. And then the reform smokers stood in the middle, and there was about 12 of them. 
And then the active smokers stood over on the right, and there was about three of them. And one of those happened to be Brendan Manning's wife at the time she was still smoking, Rosalind. She talked about in that moment when she had to go stand over in that group, she just felt so isolated that the separation just was obvious and painful. And so the professor said, okay, let's, as we're in these groups, let's discuss a couple questions. How do you guys feel about the current smoking regulations going on? Everyone kind of agreed. Hey, these are good, right? Uh, it's, it's good ecologically. It's sensitive to other people's welfare and health. But then she posed a second question. How do you feel about smokers? How do you feel about them? And that's when people started saying some painful things. Uh, some of the non-smokers piped up and said, well, obviously they're, they're inconsiderate and a little disgusting. Another said, uh, anyone who smokes has low self-esteem and lousy self-image. Others said they have no willpower. They're rotten role models for teenagers. Don't they know they're poisoning the atmosphere? And finally, someone said, I have serious questions about the quality of their faith and the depth of their relationship with Jesus. Rosalind was over there, cowering against the wall, feeling like she was a woman caught in adultery. And she said that suddenly the environment was so hostile. I mean, for the past four years, she'd been praying, worshiping, going on picnics, taking coffee breaks, uh, studying, conversing with these people. She had deep friendships. Now all of a sudden, she just wanted to cry. She just wanted to weep. She never felt so alone. And the next day, they come back to class, and Dr. McKenna um, asked the students to share their feelings from the experiment the day before. And the woman who had been the harshest apparently had been doing some soul searching, and she said, Yesterday, I learned something about myself. I need to have compassion for people who are different than me. And then she started pressing Rosalind and asking her what she felt. And Rosalind admitted, you know, I actually thought they would have thrown stones at me had they been available. And guys, this is the human tendency. It's in us all. We are so prone to hypocrisy so prone. Now, a lot of us will pick these little subgroups of sinners, and they're always groups that we don't struggle with. And we, we point our fingers over at that little group because we, we want to feel superior to them. I, even in here, guys, I, I guarantee you, some of you guys can't help but look around with a little bit of judgment going on, feeling a little spiritually superior because you don't struggle with fill in the blank. Here's the way I tend to look at it and process it and try to battle against my tendency to be a hypocrite. I imagine that all of us are really ignorant of what's going on in each of us. I probably don't even fully know what's going on in me. God knows. He knows your biological makeup. He knows the chemicals running through your brains. He knows all your social settings, how your parents raised you. He knows that whole conglomeration of things. And imagine, I, if, if I were in one of your shoes, let's say some of you really struggled with uh, what's a, a particular pet sin group, homosexuality. If I were in someone else's shoes, grew up with their gen genetic makeup, their social settings, Who's to say, I wouldn't struggle with the exact same things and maybe worse? We don't know everyone's frame. We don't know uh, the deck that they've been dealt. It's my job to accept them. 
as a child of God, bearing the image of God, a fellow brother or sister, unconditional acceptance. You want to grow, you want to create an atmosphere for growth, you have to learn to break down those walls. But on the other side, stretch is brutal honesty. And this story is a little more intense. Um, Brennan Manning tells the story back in 1975 when he was actually recovering from alcoholism. And he was in this rehabilitation center. It was up in like uh, north of Minneapolis. And he describes it as like the split level recreation center overlooking this artificial lake. Beautiful area. And in this group, there are 25 men that were all addicts in some sort. Alcohol, drug. And they had a leader, a trained counselor, a skilled therapist, who went by the name of Dr. Murphy O'Connor. And so they sat like this U group. I don't know if you guys have ever been in any um, settings where there's group therapy. It's really powerful. And there was, it was the day for Max to sit in the hot seat. So they had Max come sit there, and, and uh, Dr. Murphy O'Connor started the questioning with him. And Max uh, was a nominal Christian, uh, married with five children, president, owner of his own company, friendly, right? Remarkable poise. Maybe you know these kinds of businessmen where they just, just nothing shakes them, it seems. The counselor started on, them, on him and said, how long have you been drinking like a pig, Max? Max kind of winced and said, well, that's a bit unfair. We shall see. We're going we're gonna to do a little uh, searching in your drinking history today. How much booze per day? Max relit his corncob pipe, kind of puffed on it a bit. He said, I have two Marys uh, with the men before lunch, twin martinis at the office before it closes. Well, uh, the wife likes to drink before dinner. I got her hooked on martinis several years ago, so I have two martinis before dinner and two after before we go to bed. So a total of eight drinks per day, said Murphy O'Connor. Not a drop more, not a drop less. That's right. You're a liar. Unruffled, Max replied, I'll pretend I didn't hear that. I've been in business for 20-odd years. I've built my reputation on veracity, not dishonesty. My word is my bond. There's a guy, a Navajo Indian in the group named Benjamin. He speaks up, ever hide a bottle in the house? Don't be ridiculous. I have a bar in the living room. He was smiling again. And the interrogation continued, and Max hemmed, hawed, he, he began to hedge, uh, fudged, rationalized, justified every one of his drinking patterns. Finally, he admitted, though, that he kept a bottle of vodka in the nightstand, a bottle of gin in the suitcase for travel purposes, uh, another bottle in his bathroom for medicinal purposes, and a couple more at the office for entertaining clients. He squirmed occasionally, but he never really lost his veneer of confidence. And trying to justify his white lies, he said, Gentlemen, you know, I guess we've all gilded the lily once or twice. <laughs> Another guy yells out, You're a liar. No need to get vindictive, Charlie. Max shot back. Remember the image in John's gospel of the speck in your brother's eye and the two-by-four in your own, and the other one in Matthew about the pot calling the kettle black. Now, Brennan Menning at this point in time, a brilliant theologian, uh, constrains himself from informing Max that actually the comparison between the speck and the plank is found in Matthew's gospel and the pot calling the kettle black is not in the Bible. It's a secular proverb. But he decided to say nothing. After all, he was not there doing research on a book. 
He was another broken down drunk, just like Max. That's when the therapist said, get me a phone. So they rolled in this phone that was kind of hooked up where you could hear what was going on so everyone could hear. And uh, the counselor dials a, a number in a distant city. And the receiver was, uh, came out with his voice and, um, hello. And Dr. Murphy O'Connor said, Hank Shea? Yeah, who's this? My name is Sean Murphy O'Connor. I'm a counselor at the Alcohol and Drug Rehabilitation Center in the Midwest. Do you remember a customer named Max? Pause. Good. With this family permission, I am researching his drinking history. You tend to bar in the tavern every afternoon, so I'm wondering if you could tell me approximately how much Max drinks each day. The bartender hesitated. Uh, you sure you got permission to do this? I got a, a signed affidavit. Go ahead and shoot. Well, he's a heck of a guy. Comes in every afternoon, drops 40 bucks. He has his standard eight martinis, leaves me a good tip. Good man. Max leaps to his feet, raising his hands defiantly. He's just, he throws himself a little temper tantrum, unleashes a stream of profanity, attacks a therapist's ancestry, questions Charlie's character and the whole unit's integrity. But after he winds down a bit, he sits down, finally regains his composure, and tells everyone matter-of-factly, even Jesus lost his temper in the temple when he saw the Sadducees hawking pigeons and pastries. Another group member asked him, have you ever been unkind to your kids? He said, well, I'm glad you brought that up. I got four, ball, four boys with wonderful rapport with them. We just went out on a trip to the Rockies the other day, and he was interrupted. That's not what I asked you. Every father has been unkind to one of his children at least once in his life. I'm 62. I can, I can verify that. Tell me one time, one example, you've been unkind to your kids. Well, I was a little thoughtless with my nine-year-old daughter at Christmas Eve. What happened? I, I don't remember. I just have this heavy feeling about it. Well, what were the circumstances? Can you tell us a little about I just told you guys I don't remember. The therapist dialed Max's hometown again. And this time the voice of his wife came through. Sean Murphy O'Collar calling, calling ma'am. We're in the middle of a group session. And your uh, husband just told us he was unkind to your daughter on Christmas Eve. I was wondering if you could tell us a little details about that. A soft voice filled the room. And Max's wife explained that their daughter, Debbie, wanted a new pair of shoes for Christmas. So Max took her out, gave her $60, and said, buy the best pair of shoes in the, in the store. She bought them, came back into the truck with her dad, leaned over, kissed him, said, you're the best daddy in the world. Max, feeling a little proud of himself on the way home, decided to stop by at the cork and bottle just for a drink. Now, it was a cold, clear night. Um, it was actually during the day when he got there cold clear day and there was like 12 degrees below freezing so he left the motor running obviously locked the doors from the outside went in just to have a drink and that's when the lady sharing the story paused and dr murphy o'connor said okay uh, can you continue ma'am you could tell her her breathing was getting kind of heavy she was probably crying said max ran into a couple buddies from the army the bar they began to celebrate and max lost all sense of time all sense of reality. He came stumbling out of the bar around midnight. The motor had stopped running on the car. The windows had frozen over. Our daughter had suffered horrible frostbite on her fingers and ears. By the time we got her to the hospital, they had to amputate her, her left hand, finger, and thumb. She'll be deaf for the rest of her life. 
That's when all the guys looked over at Max. He seemed to be having like a seizure or something. He just kind of stood up in these jerky motions. His glasses went to the left, his pipe went to the right. He just fell down the ground and just started sobbing. That's when the counselor stood up, looked at the other guys, all right, let's split for a bit. Manning talks about how 24 of the addicts climbed the stairs, looked over the split level, over the rail. I saw a sight they'll never forget. Max was down on all fours. By this time, his sobs have escalated into shrieks. Murphy O'Connor walks over to him, puts his foot on his ribs and flips him over. Max rolls over on his back. And O'Connor is just glaring at him. And he says, you unspeakable slime. There's a window on the left, a door on the right. Pick one, I don't care. I'm not running a rehab for liars. At this stage, uh, Manning kind of interjects, this philosophy of tough love is based on the conviction that no effective recovery can be made until a man admits that he's powerless, powerless to whatever is controlling him, in this case, alcohol, and that his life has become unmanageable. The alternative to confronting this truth, the alternative to being brutally honest, is always some form of self-destruction. For Max, there were three options. Either he would eventually go insane, premature death, or sobriety. And then Manning writes one of the most profound lines I've ever read him. And he says, in order to free the captive, one must name the captivity. You'll never get free until you can name the cage. Later that day, Max pleads with Murphy O'Connor that he could continue treatment, and O'Connor agrees. He proceeded to undergo the most striking personality change that Manning had ever seen. Uh, he got honest, he became more open, sincere, vulnerable, and more affectionate than any man in the group. Tough love had made him real, and the truth had set him free. And the story ends the night before uh, Max completes his treatment. He's, he's in his room, just kind of sitting quietly at his desk, and his door's a little bit of a jar. Fred walks by and sees him there, and he kind of steps in, and there's just a moment of silence as, as uh, he's standing behind Fred, or standing behind um, Max, who's reading, and Max finally looks up at him, and you just see the tears streaked on his face, and he looks up at Fred and says hoarsely, you know, Fred, I just prayed for the first time in my life. He was on the road to knowing God. And to create a culture where growth is happening, we don't just talk about it, you're going to have to make some really strong commitments personally to this two-handed approach of unconditional acceptance and brutal honesty. Unconditional acceptance and brutal honesty. And to kind of close, if the, the band wants to come on up, close this morning. I want to practice some of this. and Some of you guys have so many different issues in your life, uh, as I do. I'm not saying this as I'm different than you. Um, I'm saying that uh, now's the time to deal with them. Not tomorrow. Not next week. I strongly believe that when we encounter God, something happens. But how many of you guys know, 
Just because you meet God at church camp doesn't mean that changes anything two months from now. You have to build a culture where that change, that encounter, can build some roots and actually turn into sustainable change. And so uh, this morning I wanted to practice a little bit of brutal honesty. And I'm just picking one random thing for us to, um, to face. You know, a lot of things can get in the way of our growth. Your pride, big one. That can get in the way of your growth. Your shame, I know a lot of Christians who when they sin, instead of running to God, they hide behind their shame. I know a lot of people who hide behind their disappointment. God doesn't act like they think he should act. Instead of asking him why he acts this way, we just hide and shut down. But there's one thing that I wanna, I wanna encourage, and I just felt this on my heart for a while. Especially just in the body of Christ, I, I feel like there's an issue that is one of the most effective ways of short-circuiting your relationship with God. We can go through the motions and it looks fine on the surface, but underneath, we got no relationship with Him. It's motions. And when we're you know, going to sleep at night by ourselves, that's when the, the masks go down and we realize, man, I don't know if I really believe in this God. I don't know if I like Him. I certainly don't love Him. Because when we love God, we, we act differently, right? And one of the things that it's the most effective ways to get in between you and your relationship with God is unforgiveness. We hold on to it. We talk about grudges like they're babies. You can hold a grudge. You can bear a grudge. You can carry a grudge. You can nurse a grudge. To nurse something is to give it uh, nourishment, that which will keep it alive. And uh, I, I personally feel like some of you guys are carrying some valid wounds. People have said horrible things. People have wronged you. People have disappointed you. Some people really, really close to you. So just to practice this culture, I just want to practice it. Learning to get brutally honest. We start with God. Say, let's get brutally honest with what we're carrying, with what we're struggling. Everyone here has some sort of unforgiveness. It may be small, just like someone cut you off this morning or your roommate was just being really noisy and didn't let you sleep. I don't know. It, but you're holding something. Others of you have deep, difficult things to wrestle with. And you'll, you'll never be able to resolve it here in this moment, but you can start the process. Can we just ask God to help us forgive? I mean, think about Jesus. There on the cross, nails put in his hands, a back that's just bloody as all get out. And he looks at these people. He's literally bearing the sin of the world. He says, God, would you just forgive them? They 
pray that that power gets put in you. So let's, as uh, the band sings, I just want to encourage you guys, dig deep, find that unforgiveness, and let's learn to get brutal.